Hey, good morning, C3 Picton. I'm back with you via video to round out our series on salvation. I think I preached the first message in this series via video, and now I'm going to do the last one via video. And uh, week two, I preached with you in person. As I recall this, Pastor Ravana hasn't preached her message yet on eternal life, but that uh, will have been last week's message. And so I haven't heard that message, so hopefully we, we won't contradict each other a little bit. But uh, that, that probably just goes to show the nature of this particular topic that we're dealing with, this concept of salvation, is that there's a, a lot of conjecture. And so we've dealt with over the four sessions, we've dealt with the concept of sin and atonement in weeks one and two. And those two kind of go together as a pair. Jesus has made atonement for our sins. And we talked about what sin was, and perhaps it's not just a list of moral rights and wrongs I talked about, that sin is something inside us that wants to desi- desires and wants to take for ourselves at the expense of other people. And, and we talked about uh, Jesus and how Jesus' death makes atonement for our sins. And then, and then the, the second part, the second parts three and four go together as a second part, the concept of, of eternal life and, and eternal judgment, if you like. I haven't called it eternal judgment. Really, that's the focus I'm going to go down predominantly today. There's, there's judgment and justice in this life, but I want to kind of focus more on the stuff to do with the afterlife. And so there's not going to be a lot of Bible passages. In fact, there may not even be any that I'll call out today. So before you think the Bible's, the Rowan's a heretic and he's not preaching from the Bible, I'm going to make an effort to bring a whole lot of uh, Bible thoughts together and bring them out in a way that's perhaps maybe a little bit different to what you've even thought about. In fact, I, I would say that when you come to thinking about the topic of eternal judgment, maybe what you've been taught uh, isn't as anchored in Scripture as perhaps you think it is. There's a lot of uh, speculation uh, that we do when it comes to the matters of the afterlife and God's judgment and hell and all that that isn't really founded upon a a solid doctrine. It's not like we can go to the Bible, bugs flying around my roof, it's not like we can go to the Bible and and sort of form up a doctrine on page one of the Bible that's all about hell. It was a progressive doctrine, the concept of God as a judge and God's justice and all that was progressively revealed throughout scripture. So today, if you wanted a title for my sermon, I suppose you could call it, what the hell? What the hell? We're going to look at some cons in some way this concept of hell, but as an overarching theme for God's justice, God's judgment. And many of us probably are uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable with the concept of hell. I've been a pastor for many years, and I invariably will hear people say, "We don't preach on hell enough, pastor. We don't preach on sin enough. We don't preach on repentance enough." And you get other people who, the moment you you attach the top, attack the topic of hell or sin or judgment or justice at all, you get people who go, oh, "That's too harsh." And so I'm constantly fighting this challenge, walk this battle between being too harsh and not harsh enough. And it often has to do with the background that we've been raised in. In fact, we have a type of preaching. We call it what? Hell, fire, and you probably all just said brimstone, didn't you? Hell, fire, and brimstone. This concept of, of good old Southern Baptist evangelical preaching where you basically tell everyone they're filthy sinners and they're all going to go to rotten hell and, and Jesus has made a way from you and, and kind of try to scare people. So the motive for coming into the kingdom is actually a selfish motive to avoid punishment. And that's the, the old school hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. And then at the other end, you've probably got people who maybe maybe because they're kind of counteracting that, they go a little bit the other way and get a bit soft and don't talk enough about the concept of right and wrong and judgment and sin and repentance. And I think the, the balance that I want to find, if there is such a thing as a balance, is, is somewhere in the middle. Because you see, Jesus has a lot to say about justice. Jesus is interested in the concept of justice. Jesus wants to, he has a lot to say about punishment for that matter, for, for, for wrongdoing. 
And so we have to find a way to reconcile the, these two. And that's the challenge for, for all of us. And, and if you survey people, if you survey Christians about this concept of heaven and hell, a lot of Christians, most of the high percentage of Christians will say, yeah, I believe in heaven, I believe in that place, and you know, I believe people will go to heaven when they die or whatever the case might be, they, they believe about heaven. And you'll say to these people, well, do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the concept of eternal judgment? And do you know, friends, that the, the number of people who believe in eternal judgment is considerably lower than those who'll say they believe in eternal life? Like, think, stop and think about that for a minute. Why would there be a disparity between here and here? Surely one determines the other. Life, death, judgment, victory holiness, all that kind of stuff. Where, How do they fit together? Well, one thing I neglected to tell you is that that's the result you get when you survey people in Western Christian nations. Western Christians have this problem. If you survey people in developing nations or in nations where persecution is strongest against their faith, you will find this. You will find that their belief in eternal judgment is actually right up there parallel to their belief in eternal life. Now, why would that be different in Western nations compared to in foreign nations where there's persecution? I guess you could argue, well, the first thing you could say is, oh, that's because we're more enlightened in the West. We, we understand this more. But maybe it's because we largely as a community, and I say this very carefully because some of the examples I'm going to give today could be quite traumatic. Uh, I think when you're dealing with tough topics like judgment and sin, there's definitely going to be trauma attached to it. So I just want to let you know, preempt you for that. If you need to make your way out of the room. I totally understand that. I'm going to try and do it graciously, but but in order to do this uh, philosophy and theology well, we do need to wrestle with, with the worst of human behavior. And so collectively as a community in the West, we haven't really seen and witnessed the worst of humanity. We might read about it on the news. We might see it in a distant nation. Some of us might have experienced the, the deep trauma of abuse. And this isn't to say, this is why when I mentioned it, it's not to say that individually we have, but collectively the Western world has not experienced what some of the other nations have experienced. So for instance, because we don't understand the worst of it, we think it's easier for us to believe that God is just a gracious God who forgives. But if you go to, say, let's say Uganda and you go to a, a man in a village who, um, when the terrorists had come in the middle of the night and, and uh, you know, murdered his family and taken away his children to become child soldiers and said, what kind of God do you want to serve? And you say, oh, let me just tell you, God's just a forgiving God. He's a loving God. You know, I know it wasn't good, but, but you know, you just got to forgive. You know, that's not the kind of God that person wants to serve. That man wants a just God. That man needs a God who will put right the wrongs and injustices of this world. And so it's a lot easier for them. Or a Holocaust victim in World War II who's seen the worst atrocities of the prison camps and the gas chambers they want a God who rights wrongs. Or the Syrian refugee crisis that's been going on for many years now. They want a God who puts right the injustices of the world. And so once we take a step back, we realise, oh, it's not as black and white as I thought it was. And we start to think that actually we all have this sense of right and wrong. This question you often get asked is, well, if God's such a loving God, why would he punish people to hell? Isn't that just a bit steep? Isn't that a bit hard? And if I'm honest, I wrestle with that too. And I'm going to come back to that in a few moments' time. But for now, I want to just show us that intuitively in all of us, we have an innate sense of right and wrong. We're not as, uh, we're not as enlightened as we think we are. And I want to give a bit a couple of examples. There, there was an, exa- uh, an example I used to use with, with um, school kids when I used to teach them at Picton High. I used to teach them uh, Year 7 kids. I'd use this with Year 7s. It always resounded. I'd say, 
supposing you're playing your PlayStation and mum and dad say it's time to go to bed and you head off to bed. During the night, someone comes in and steals your PlayStation. And they go, what, no! And I say, oh, it's, it's okay though, because they found your PlayStation. The police managed to track down the thief. They found your PlayStation and the kids go, oh, it's great. So yeah, so the, the, the thief, he got put before the the, the, um, the the court because he'd been caught stealing lots of PlayStations and they'll go, oh, that's awesome, fantastic, that's justice right there. And I say, yeah, yeah. So what happened was that the judge said, you've been going all over the community in Picton and Tarmore stealing PlayStations, so I'm going to sentence you to life imprisonment with no chance of parole. And these year seven kids are all cheering the justice suddenly go, what? What? I go, what? Well, what are you talking about? They go, that's not fair. Well, what do you mean it's not fair? He's been stealing your PlayStations. They go, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't deserve life in jail. And intuitively, even your seven kids understood that their punishment had to fit the crime, didn't it? And that life imprisonment with no parole, as bad as stealing PlayStations was, it, it outmatches. So the severity of punishment must be linked to the harm or damage caused to the person who are the victims of the offence. So there has to be some kind of link to what damage has been done or to the value of the victim of the offence. And secondly, the length of punishment should be linked to the amount of harm done to the victim of the offence. It might only take you 20 seconds to steal, jump in, or maybe take you 10 minutes to jump into a house, steal a PlayStation and leave. So does that therefore determine that they only need 10 minutes, 10 minutes of punishment? And intuitively, we know it's not linked in that way. It's linked to the value of the offence or the value, value of the person that has been offended against. Let me give you another simple example. Many years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, uh, we were celebrating my son Mike's uh, birthday party, having dinner at our house with all the family. There was a knock on the door. And uh, we had news, a guy knocked on the door and said, do you have a black and white cat? And we said, yes. And they said, oh, your cat's been run over. And I raced outside and we had two cats, Jade and Ollie. Some of you have seen Ollie jumping around, meowing or carrying on in, in Zoom meetings here in this room. Uh, Ollie is, uh, he was one of a stray. Jay, Jay and Jade and Ollie were found together. I guess it's 14, he's probably 14 years old now or something like that. And uh, Jade was always the more energetic one, always jumping the fence and running away and bringing lizards back. And Ollie was a bit more apprehensive. Well, anyway, in this particular night, Jade had run out, it was on dusk, and she'd obviously run across the street and lived on the corner and a car obviously come around the corner. Probably didn't even realise that he'd hit Jade or she'd hit Jade. And Jade was hit and had passed away. By the time I got there, she was already gone. Tragic as it was, it messed up our birthday party that night. And we obviously had to turn it into a, a funeral service for precious Jade and brought her in and we buried her in the backyard and said a few words and helped the kids grieve. It was a, it was a hard night because our kids loved this cat. And uh, so as a result of that, our kids have lived and we, Ollie barely has been outside ever since. I mean, he goes out in our backyard here, but he can't get over the fence. He's too old for that now. But there's no way we let our kids out on the street. And we've got plenty of funny stories about when Ollie's gotten out on the street over the years. And we've come home from prisons conference and freaking out, thinking Ollie had gotten out and all kinds of stuff. Kids have always lived with that fear of our cat being run over previously in our last house being on a busy street. So let's just take this analogy further. Suppose that knock on the door had come. And uh, the guy said, uh, oh, there's a, there's a young girl out on the street who's been hit by a car. And, and uh, this is just a thought experiment. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm going to just imagine this just for the sake of the experiment. Imagine that I said, oh, that's terrible. And we're upset about that. And we take the young girl and we bury her in the backyard and we move on with our night and we help the kids grieve. Intuitively, we know, don't we? That's not right. We wouldn't do that. It's okay to do it with Jade the cat, but it's not okay to do that with a young girl. Or suppose that a guy comes knocking on the door and says, oh, there was a cockroach running across the road and the car came around the corner and ran over the cockroach. 
How many people know I'm not even interrupting our dinner for that? Why is that? Why is it? Because intuitively, we understand that the results and consequences of the actions that require uh, that come afterwards change depending upon the value of the victim. A cat is here, a person is here, a cockroach is here. And regardless of what you might think about that, we intuitively know that. We link the value of the crime. I'll put it, what did I say? The length and punishment and the severity of the punishment should be linked to the amount of harm done to the victim and the value of the victim of the offence. So we understand that that is really what justice is all about. Or let's put it a different way. Uh, you may have seen the good person test. The good person test is just a little graph. I'm not going to do a whiteboard now. A little graph, a little graph like this, that has the level of goodness on the y-axis and allows for different people on the x-axis. And so we say, well, let's think about the worst person that you can think of. And invariably people will say, some of you said it, didn't you? Adolf Hitler. That's right. Some of you will say Adolf Hitler. We'll go, well, how, where does Adolf Hitler fit on the y-axis in terms of the good person test? And we'll go, well, probably down the bottom. In fact, he's probably in the minuses. But for the sake of the illustration, let's put Adolf Hitler here. Then we'll go, okay, so where does the best person you can ever think of? Who's the best person you can ever think of? Some of you said it, didn't you? Yep, Mother Teresa. That's what we experienced. Mother Teresa. And we go, where does she fit? And she goes, well, she's right up near the top of the good person test. She's right near the top of the scale. Okay, good. So we've got, a, we've got a bad person test, we've got the good person test. So the next question is, well, where do you fit on that scale? And, you, and invariably, if we're honest, we'll go, well, we're, we're certainly not Adolf Hitler, but we're probably not Mother Teresa either, so probably in the middle somewhere. And if you think about it, you'll probably go, oh, yeah, my kids are down here, or my wife's down here, and your wife will nudge you right now and say, no, 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 I'm above you. But invariably, we know we're not as bad as this, but we're not as good as Mother Teresa. We place ourselves on the good person scale somewhere. And the next question I want to ask you is, well, Where's the benchmark? Where's the line that frees you from eternal judgment? Where's the line that's good enough not to experience judgment? And intuitively, left to our own devices, we probably all go, well, we know that Adolf Hitler's not good enough, so it's got to be above him, but uh, it's got to be below us, so it must be down here. And we all draw the line intuitively underneath ourselves. But if we're honest, the good person test scale where is the point of good enough? It's not even on the graph. It's, it's sky high. It's infinite. Because we're going to see the value of the one that we have sinned against is infinite. When we sin, we sin against an infinite God. When we sin against others, we sin against the image of the infinite God that God has imprinted into others. And so the value of a sin against a, a crime against an infinite God should be, guess what? An infinite punishment. So nothing is going to be good enough. And so when we start to wrestle with this, we intuitively get this sense of, of justice, don't we? And so I want us to be thinking about that. When Jesus died on the cross, it was his sacrifice, the sacrifice of an infinite value, valuable God that was enough to make atonement for all of human beings. How could this, the, the death of one man 2,000 years ago be enough for everybody? And, and Jesus on the cross, he has this moment where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know what was going on in that moment, but it was like at that moment, he was experiencing hell. He was experiencing a withdrawal of grace, which I'll talk about in a moment. He experiencing some sense of being in some way forsaken by God. And how can that be enough? Even if that was just that long, how could that be enough? We well, see that would be long enough because the value of the sacrifice is infinite. So that would be a tenth of a second would be more than enough to satisfy the value of all sins throughout all of time by all of people because God is infinite. And so 
we, once we grasp that, we understand some of the value of Jesus' sacrifice and what it means. So in these last few minutes, I want to turn our mind away from judgment, narrow down a bit on the concept of hell and talk about hell because you'll probably find that people will ask you about hell and what do you believe? And maybe you're here today and just seeking out faith and thinking, what do you believe about hell? And much of what you believe or much of what you imagine has probably got more to do with what you've experienced um, others have told you or what you've seen throughout history than what's in the Bible. In fact, the reason I'm not using a lot of scripture today is because there's not a massive amount of Bible about this. The Bible has more to say about justice and right living in this life than it does about justice and God bringing judgment in the life to come. So here's a few little things just to sort of get us some perspective. When it comes to the concept of hell in the Bible, there's lots of metaphors and analogies and symbolism. And if we try to form up a doctrine and say hell looks like this, we find ourselves trying to mix metaphors together that don't work. So for instance, uh, the Greek word that is often described, translated as hell in our Bible is the word Hades. Hades was the actual Greek god in the mythology. He was the Greek god of the underworld. Jesus talks about uh, hell, Gehenna, quite a lot. In fact, even on the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like this. He says, fear the one who can throw you into Hades, not just the one who, who can hurt you in this life, but the one who could affect your eternal life. Fear that one. So there's this concept of eternal judgment. Even in Jesus, the one we think on the Sermon on the Mount talks about loving one another and loving your neighbor, he also talks about the, the consequences of failing to do that is judgment. And then we have other metaphors that are used throughout uh, the Bible to talk about this concept of hell or this place of torment or whatever. And we get terms like unquenchable fire. We get terms like outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the word that I mentioned a minute ago, Gehenna, is a word that is often translated as hell. Now, this Gehenna doesn't mean much to us, but to the Jews, it meant a lot. You see, Gehenna was the term given to the valley south of the city of Jerusalem, the valley of Hinnom. We get uh, Hinnom, Hena, that's the same root word. And uh, I make a point when I've been to Israel and walking along the wall and pointing out to people the very one of the first days we're walking around the wall and I say, see that down there, that's hell. And the purpose is to show them that it's actually not. It's just a whole lot of, it's a whole lot of uh, people, you know, it's an Arab area. They're living there now. Lots of, uh, lots of Arabs live there. But at the time of Jesus, this place south of the city, the, the city of Jerusalem, was not lived in. It was, a, it was a garbage dump. It was the local tip. Part of the reason was is it had grown to have this reputation because the, many of the kings of Judah in the Old Testament had uh, performed horrible sacrifices and child sacrifice, human sacrifice, all kinds of horrible ritual stuff in this valley of Hinnom, and as a result of that, it became so impure in their thinking that by the time of Christ, they'd turn it into the rubbish dump. Now, this rubbish dump, they would take their refuse and just dump it on there, and it would be always burning. Stuff's always being burned up there, and the fire would never go out, and then worms would be eating all the stuff, and the worms would never go hungry because there's always more refuse. So that's the picture of Gehenna that the Jews hear when Jesus talks about this place. And so he describes it as, you know that tip down the road? That's what it's going to be like. Eternal punishment is going to be like that. A place where the fire is never going to go out, where the worm is never going to be satisfied. There's always going to be more burning. And so that's the analogy that Jesus used. But also he'll talk about outer darkness. Well, straight away, you can't have outer darkness and fire burning all the time. Why not? Fire is light, isn't it? So the moment you have a bit of fire, you don't have darkness. So you can see how we've got to allow these things to be metaphors that are illustrating a point. So what really then, 
would be a good definition for hell or the judgment of God or this place of judgment. And I think if we put it all together, many, many theologians and philosophers have questioned this. And I think one way that I like to think about this is I see it more as um, a withdrawal of special grace, a withdrawal, sorry, a withdrawal of, uh, of common grace, I should say. There's two kinds of grace in the Bible, special grace and common grace. Special grace is uh, the special offer that each of us has. Today, you are offered special grace, a special offer of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ that you can come to the Father through a relationship with Jesus because of his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice on the cross for you. That's the offer of special grace that's available to us. There's also a concept of common grace. Now, it's a bit cloudy outside today, but the sun has been out. You see, the sun shining is common grace. The Bible says God causes his sun to rise on the righteous and the wicked. Rain, air, food, art, it's all common grace. It's all something that God has freely given to us. Genesis 3 account, you know, Genesis 2, God creates the heavens and he creates the earth and then he creates Eden and he gives all the trees of the garden. He says, you can have all of this. I want to give you so much to enjoy. That's common grace, friends. There's always enough of God's grace to go around. But the thing is, we have a choice what we want to do with common grace. We have a choice as to whether we want to take and use common grace and see what's good for ourselves, desire it and take it and consume it all on ourselves, or do we want to be a people who image God and like God gave it away to us, we give it away to others. We have a choice as to whether to consume or give, whether to take or give. And when we sin, we are consuming common grace on ourselves rather than giving it away. And so I see that what could be happening is that this place of hell, this, this whatever this looks like, it's a withdrawal of common grace. It's like God saying, well, okay, I chose to give you all of this because I love you and I encourage you to give it away to others, but you haven't. You've chosen to keep it for yourself. I'm going to take it away. So it's a withdrawal of common grace. And the end result of that is we are left in a hell of our own making. Our own poor choices bring about a hell for us. The end result of not choosing what God says is good is that we choose what we think is good and it's actually bad. It's actually raw. It's actually evil. It's actually destructive. And so if you think about it that way, then hell becomes the absence of common grace. Instead of sunlight, darkness. Instead of water, thirst. Instead of air, suffocation. Instead of food and unsatiable hunger. Instead of joy, depression. Instead of laughter, weeping. Instead of beauty, dullness or ugliness, instead of peace, war, instead of love, hatred, and so on. G.K. Chesterton famously said that hell is the ultimate monument to human free will. Hell is the ultimate monument to human free will. C.S. Lewis said, either we will say to God, like Jesus did in the garden, God, thy will be done. We choose your way, God, your will. We choose to honor you. Or God will say, okay, you, d you haven't chosen to honour me, thy will be done. And so you choose your own way, you choose your own path, you choose not to live and accept the common grace I've given. The end result of that is hell is the ultimate monument to human free will. God will withdraw his common grace, not out of some kind of vindictive punishment, but because it's an honouring of our free will not to choose him. Now, God has given us ultimate free will. What we do with that is the key. And so can you see how 
hell might not be such a, the, the God with a vindictive stick up there wanting to whip us. It's just that God wants to give us grace, but we refuse to accept it. And eventually God will say, okay. And so therefore, hell is something of our own making more than something of God's making. Now, as we close, I want to kind of talk about three different views of hell. The first one is probably the one you're most familiar with. Uh, you may not be familiar with the term, but you probably have been taught this and believe this. And it's probably still where I sit, 85% of where I sit. Version 2 and 3, um, I'd like to think that they had validity, and I think they probably do have some validity. I, I think my view on the first one is probably morphed a little bit, but uh, I still largely sit there, and I'll touch on why. The first one is called uh, eternal conscious torment, or the concept of hell is somehow for eternity, a person who refuses Christ will live in eternal conscious torment. For your torment will go on forever and ever and ever. And you can see this is where the hell, fire and brimstone preaching comes in. You don't want that, so turn to Jesus. Turn or burn, if you like, is the, the common vernacular they use. This concept of eternal conscious torment. And there are scriptures that back that up. That whether or not you can build doctrine out of them, I don't know so much, but there are scriptures. Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is in Hades and in torment. So this concept of this eternal conscious torment. The second one is called conditional immortality. And it has another term too. I can't think of it off the top of my head at the moment. But this is a belief that, that those who choose Jesus, choose the condition of accepting Jesus, they will enter into immortality. That immortality, living forever, living eternally, is dependent on whether you choose Jesus. If you don't, you cease to exist. God's abandonment is actually that he, he ceases to exist. Now, this, if I'm honest, this is probably easier to deal with. Because I find it easier, personally, I'm just saying in my own sense of right and wrong, I find it easier to deal with the fact that God would actually not cause a person to be punished for eternity or, or suffer torment for eternity, but rather in his grace would just cause the person to cease to exist. Kind of like we would euthanize an animal. We put the animal down so we don't want it to suffer. Now, part of me likes that idea. But the thing is, not just about what I like, it's what do I reason out of Scripture? What does Scripture teach me? And I think Scripture still points towards the first one, but maybe not with a hard and fast rule that I used to have. But because I like the concept of that, because I would rather a person not suffer so rather than, than be in a hell of their own making. So, But I still lean towards that one, uh, the first one. Eternal conscious torment, number one. Conditional immortality, number two. And that has, I should add, that has some validity in the whole concept of eating from the tree of life. When Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, the concept was that, that would be, they would be able to eat from that tree as much as they wanted and they would be able to experience more immortality. When they were banished from the garden, they became mortal. It says, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. Why? Because you no longer have access to the tree of life. And the end result of that is death. So there is some validity in that. The tree of life appears over and over in Scripture. And for those who believe in the end, there's a tree of life in the New Jerusalem that we can eat from. So is there a sense in which conditional immortality is possible? Yes, it probably is to some degree. Now, the third one, which has probably been less vogue, but is actually coming into vogue a little bit more now. I'm not sure I, I agree with it, but I've forced myself to wrestle with it, um, is what the Bible calls universalism. And that is that in the end, universally, all people will be saved. Universally, no one will go to hell. Love Wins was a famous book that Rob Bell put out about this some years ago. And in the end, love will win and we'll all go to heaven. Now, at first glance, I used to just dismiss that because I could think of a 10, 15 scriptures that would dismiss that. So I've wrestled with it. I've gone, what is it about that message that, that um, 
it could give it some validity. And to be fair, some of the universalists have wrestled with some tough questions. So here's, here's two that I've had to wrestle with in that point. The first one has to do with human free will. That somehow if in the end everyone gets saved, if in the end everyone experiences eternal life, if in the end no one receives judgment, then how is that, how is that backed up by the concept of human free will? Isn't that actually... Uh, the nature of the devil. The devil is the one who wants to violate human free will. God is the one who wants to honor human free will. So if in the end, everybody will choose or has to choose God, that would be abusive on God's part. That would God be not honoring the gift of free will that he has. And so if I've got no choice but to accept him, where is my free will gone? Now, those who want to counteract that, the universalists that want to counteract that, they have a pretty good argument for that. They say something like, yes, but in the end, if people really get it, they'll have no obligate. It won't be like their choice is inflicted upon them. Of course they'll choose. They'll see it for what it is. And of course they'll choose eternal life. Of course they'll choose to avoid judgment. So that's the first point. Still struggle with that because I don't see a lot of reference in the Bible to the concept of having free will to choose after death. It seems to me the Bible seems to indicate that choice is something we have largely this side of the grave. But there are probably one or two scriptures you could twist if you wanted to do that. So that's, that's the first thing about it. The second thing about it is kind of feels like it denies all that justice stuff I said before, that if God's just going to accept everybody in the end and everyone comes in, where's the justice in that? Where's the God putting right the wrongs that have been inflicted? If God just says, oh, Adolf Hitler, come on in, Where's the justice in that? Isn't that unjust, unfair of God to do that? Now, the universalists who wrestle with this, they'll come up with something not that different to purgatory, that whole concept of, yeah, that was wrong, and they will have to do something about that, and they will have to, to make amends. Adolf Hitler is going to have to pay the price. He's going to have to put right some wrongs. For instance, he might be required to wash the feet of every Jew that he had killed, you know, and therefore he's making amends. Now, that sounds reasonable, it's just that I can't see that in the Bible. I'm not saying it couldn't be the case. It's just I can't build an argument. That's more in the realm of philosophy rather than theology. And for the, something like this, I want to limit ourselves to what we see in the Bible. It's okay to wrestle with it, but come back to the Bible. So I would say that the ultimate answer for me is that it boils down to human free will. We have a choice as to whether we will honor God with our lives or not. And so as we get ready to close... I didn't really want this to be a scary hellfire and brimstone message, but I also didn't want it to be a soppy, pat you on the back, everything's okay, don't worry about how you live message. And this is how I think we need to merge the two together. It comes like this. What you do with Jesus will determine where you spend eternity, but what you do for Jesus will determine how you spend eternity. What you do with the person of Jesus, what you do with his free offer of special grace, what you do with the fact that Jesus offers salvation through faith in him and opportunity to experience eternal life, what you choose to do with that will determine whether or not you experience eternal life or whatever eternal judgment looks like. Whatever it looks like, it's not as good as eternal life. Okay, so we have a choice. What do we do with that, friends? What you do with Jesus will determine where you spend eternity. Now, assuming that you've made the choice to spend eternity with Jesus and accepted Jesus, the next question is, what do you do for Jesus?
See, part of the problem with the, the way we've taught salvation is, great, you've got your ticket to heaven. It doesn't really matter now. God's wiped your slate clean and you no longer got a list of sins and you just go through life selfishly because I've got my ticket to heaven. But you see, the Bible also talks about another kind of judgment. It's called the Bema Seat of Judgment. It's a judgment of reward, in fact. And I haven't got time to go into what the Bema Seat is all about, but essentially it was just a judgment for reward. And Peter and Paul both pick up on this in the New Testament in different ways. And so the concept of um, Bema Seat Reward Judgment has to do with what we do in this life, the way we live our life. If we live a life that is self-focused, we might be saved, but we haven't lived a life that is fully human, that we haven't achieved what the potential that we have to image God in the world and honor the image of God in others and prefer others over ourselves and care for the vulnerable. We've become selfish. We might have been saved, but we've lived selfishly. And the Apostle Paul would say, when you do that, it's like escaping through the fire. You get through, you'll get to be with God for eternity, but everything that you've built upon will be burned up like wood, hay and straw. You yourself may be saved, but there's nothing to show for it. Don't want that. The opposite, Peter talks about, I think it's Peter, and he talks about building upon gold and silver and precious stones. When we live a life that values God, honors God, loves God, loves our neighbor, when we live a life that's selfless, that is doing righteousness to others, when we fulfill that calling because Jesus has enabled us to do that by defeating sin, then we're building a life of great reward. We're actually building a life that will our works will last into eternity. So what we do with Jesus determines where we spend eternity. What we do for Jesus determines how we will spend eternity. And that's worth thinking about, friends. I don't want anyone to not be saved. God's will is that none should perish, but that all should receive eternal life, scriptures say. God wants us to experience eternal life, but then to live a life that truly fulfills who we're called to be. Our greatest life is found in giving up our life. Let's make it count. You know, our life is like one sheet of a toilet roll. And if we just think about a long sheet of roll of toilet roll, that's eternity. Just imagine what we do in this life affects all of that. Let's, friends, live a life that honors God, that chooses God, that says, God, thy will be done. And God will reward us with an eternity of blessing and favor that is, be- that is beyond our imagination. That's where we're going to leave this series, friends. We're going to leave this series on salvation, thinking about all that God has done for us and what are the implications for what he's done for us as we think about how we live our lives into the world around us. God bless you. Thanks for being with us and I'll talk to you soon.